We are in the middle, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we are in the middle of a series through the book of First Timothy. So if you would take your copy of God's Word uh, and turn there, you can follow along as I, as I read and as I teach through these things. First Timothy will be in chapter 6. So when you use uh, devices, I don't know if any of you could hear that, but uh, there we go. Uh, Siri was talking to me, and I didn't want her to. It's like, why did he, why is he paused? Is that dramatic? No, nope, just can't get her away from my notes. There we go. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 6. Let's talk about slavery. First, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. I pray that as we read it and look at it and consider it together, you give us hearts of increasing submission to what your word does say. Um, free us from the sinful desire to make it say things that does not say. Uh, may we, we may glorify Christ our Lord and King, uh, our God, who given us this word. Amen. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this, Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So the question I want to answer in the time that we have, uh, by the way, it's like, how does this have to do with baptism? This has to do with this is the next text that we came to. Uh, and that's how we follow our way through this. But how does the gospel impact slavery? How does the gospel impact slavery? And that's, how, that's what Paul is addressing to Timothy to be addressed first in the church of Ephesus, and then as this is an inspired word of God, uh, how it's to impact all believers throughout time. I want to start by talking about slavery in the first century church so we can set that context, and then toward the end of this sermon, we'll talk about applications for us, 21st century America here at Risen King Church. Slavery in the first century church. First, we need to recognize that slavery was a reality. There's no need or reason or way for us to move around these words. Uh, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants. Uh, bond servants is a word often translated uh, as slave. It means what you think it means. A man or woman who was the property of a householder, typically assigned any range of duties from the menial to those requiring special skills in the household. Uh, the ESV translators, in their preface to uh, the ESV, which is what I'm preaching out of, uh, one of a number of good translations, many of you are following along with that. If you go to the front preface as they discuss their translation philosophy and uh, why they translated certain concepts and certain words in certain ways, uh, they address this one and they list this word as a, quote, particular difficulty. Uh, in trying to show that slavery in Old Testament Israel or the Roman Empire during the time of the New Testament does not correspond directly to slavery 
in the modern world. So when we think of slaves, we most readily think of the African slave trade to the Americas prior to the Civil War. Uh, and there are some similarities between that ancient practice and modern practices, even up to the present, some similarities as well as some differences. I think it's important as we consider this in the New Testament, I think it's important to recognize slavery has been a cultural reality in nearly every human civilization throughout, throughout history, and it has not been eradicate, eradicated in the present world. Nowhere near it, right? It's actually morphed and transitioned in some ways into worse forms of slavery that if you're not aware of, you should be, uh, but I'm not going to elaborate on at this time. I think I've read something like 40 million enslaved people in the world today in nearly every country in the world, including our own. So slavery uh, just always exists, not even close to eradicated. And we need to live in the tension of recognizing the sins of past generations and cultures while also admitting the sins of our own generation and culture, right? Because we are far from innocent, in the 21st century, in 21st century America. We are not morally superior to those who have gone before us, as if they were sinners and that we are not, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every individual and every culture that is made up of individuals is sinful, and we should not and need not glorify or excuse actual sinful practices in the past, and we should not and must not glorify or excuse actual sinful practices in the present. See, these, and these bond servants, this was, a, this was a reality, and when it says bond servants, you know, we could try to say it's like, well, uh, it's just kind of like an, an employee, maybe, right? There couldn't really be masters and slaves in a New Testament church. Uh, the texts don't allow for that to be an accurate interpretation. And even this phrase that he says, under a yoke as bond servants or under a yoke as slaves, describes these believers in Ephesus. A yoke, right? Not egg yoke. <laughs> a yoke, a piece of wood used to attach oxen to a plow. A burden that is borne not willingly and symbolizes uh, the hard work and menial tasks required of these slaves. To put it simply, if you've got a yoke around your neck, you are not in charge. Someone else is in charge of you. Now, Paul's references to a yoke here does not necessarily mean that these slaves were actually treated equivalent to animals. Some slaves have been and are. That's not necessarily the case here, although some of them may have been. It does stress, though, under a yoke as bond servants or slaves, does stress the harsh social and existential reality of the person who existed as the property of another for whatever period of time that was. Sometimes there were periods of it. Sometimes it was for a lifetime. There's no need to try to alter our understanding of first century slavery to make it identical to a modern employer-employee relationship. See, that, that was not the case. Okay? Slavery was a reality uh, in the first century church. And here's another important matter to recognize, and I think scripture is clear about this. Slavery itself was not sin. Slavery itself was not a sin issue for masters or for slaves. Moses, Jesus, 
Paul and Peter all interact with the reality of slavery among their audiences in God's word. And the commandment or instruction from any of them is not free your slaves or you are lost. You can search the scriptures. That is not what you will find. If you're expecting that to be the message of the Bible, you will be disappointed. So you need to ask yourself, do we and our culture determine righteousness and morality and then project it back onto God's word? Or does God determine goodness and righteousness revealed in his word and we submit to it? Who is right, God or us when the two conflict? Who submits to who? As believers, we must submit ourselves and our definitions of what is right and wrong to God's word. Now, just because slavery is not universally condemned by God through the authors of scripture, that does not mean that slavery is exempt from moral evaluation. That's certainly not the case. See, sin was present in slavery. Obviously, it was. That's true of, of everything. Masters could and did sin against their slaves. And slaves could and did sin against their masters. Which of these two scenarios are taking place here? You know, which is Paul addressing? Right? Sin is a reality in slavery, right? Masters can and did sin against their slaves. Slaves can and did sin against their masters. Which one is Paul addressing in this text? You tell me. Masters sinning or slaves sinning? I want you to see it and say it. Slaves sinning against their masters. That's the case here, and it's the case in texts like Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, Colossians 3, 22 to 25, Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, and 1 Peter 2, verses 18 and 20. And what I love specifically, I'm not going to, if you want to look at those texts, if you didn't jot them down, we could talk about that later. But in Titus 2 and 1 Peter 2, what's amazing is that in and out of the context of slaves needing to obey their masters in honor of Christ, there are these beautiful gospel texts that flow out of that. Right? Like I've memorized Titus 2, 11 and 12 a long time ago. I think I said I wasn't going to take time on this. Apparently I am. 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to, un- to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What a great text. And it comes right on the tail of bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything because it adorns the doctrine of God, our savior. Which savior? The grace of God appearing incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Which is Paul addressing? Paul is addressing here slaves sinning against their masters. Other texts address masters against their slaves. And here's something I find interesting. Proponents of critical theory, talked about this before. Many of you have read a ton about this. If you haven't, if you're not aware of it, you need to be aware of it. And we're going to do our best to help you being aware of it and evaluating it. Proponents of critical theory want everything to be viewed through power dynamics 
oppressor and oppressed. That's everybody and the definition of all of reality. See, once you have divided everyone and everything into those categories, oppressor or oppressed, guilt is only assigned to one category, the oppressor, the one who's in power, the group who is in power. And in a sense, justification is granted only to one category, the oppressed, those who are, do not have the power in their favor. But first of all, for a number of reasons, that's an unbiblical lens through which we view reality. It does not adequately explain the world in which we live. See, all have sinned, regardless of how exalted or marginalized they are. All sin is primarily against God, not first and foremost against one another. And every human being uniquely, uniquely, individually, reflects the image of God, not merely the characteristics of their various groups. But back to my point, in this text, there is a clear power dynamic difference between two groups, masters and slaves. And it is the slaves who are shown here to have a moral obligation before God in how they respond to their masters. It is the oppressed, truly Oppressed, truly those who have power dynamics working against them, who, are, who have a moral obligation before God in how they respond. In other words, the oppressed will be judged by God as to how they respond to their oppressors. In other texts, masters are also addressed as to their moral obligation to their slaves before God, right? Because they also are slaves to the Lord, which is a whole other aspect of this. Paul does not address that here in this text, the obligation of masters, although other texts do. And why is that? It's like, well, every text can't address everything, right? And there are certain situations that Paul's writing about. Perhaps it's a reason as simple as there were more slaves in the church of Ephesus sinning against their masters than there were masters sinning against their slaves. We don't know. That's, that's just speculation on that. Maybe the masters had paid better attention to Paul's earlier letter to the church in Ephesus, the same body, addressing counsel of slaves to masters and masters to slaves. Certainly, he wrote this again because of how difficult it would have been to live as slaves and yet do so in a way that honors God and the gospel. And yeah, that's exactly what these are being called to. What are Paul's commands to Timothy, or through Timothy, to the Christian slaves, part of the church in Ephesus. First, he says to honor them, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Next, he says to respect them, or he says don't disrespect them. You must not be disrespectful. And then the last is that they must serve, but serve well. You see that in verse two? They, they must serve, these slaves, they must serve all the better. Honor your masters, respect your masters, and serve them well. Serve them better than any other slave does. As with so many commands that we find in Scripture, these are not difficult to understand. They're very difficult for us to obey. Imagine yourself in this scenario. Scenario of, of a word filled with metaphors of freedom from slavery, slavery to sin, Longing for that to, to impact your life, it's not impacting your life, and yet you're called 
to obey the Lord in specific, concrete, difficult ways. Why do we not obey so many commands that we find in Scripture? It's because we don't want to. It's not that they're too hard physically. It's that they're too hard, maybe you could say morally or spiritually in the hardness of our hearts. We think our situation, I think our circumstances somehow exempt us from obeying or honoring God. This is too hard, therefore it must be too hard. It must not actually be what God wants for me in this scenario. Perhaps we get, a, we get a pass for some reason or another. To put it differently, we think the person we're interacting with is not a neighbor whom we must love as we love ourselves. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the question that followed was what? Who's my neighbor? Or really, he wanted to know, who's not my neighbor? So I can avoid obedience. And Jesus made the point, there's no loopholes here. Your neighbor is the one that you interact with. God's commands do apply to us in all circumstances. Paul's given these commands. He also gives a reason. What is Paul's reason for these commands to these slaves in relationship to their masters. The motivation for the Christian slaves to honor, to obey, to serve well, even or especially unbelieving masters, because there's a potential that we actually have two scenarios in verse one and two, unbelieving masters and then believing masters, potentially. But what's Paul's reason for slaves to serve in this way? And it's very simple. I mean, isn't the reason for so many things? Like we said, what's the reason? And you'd given a Sunday school answer, I guess the most basic Sunday school answer is, Jesus, like, yeah, let's take it a little bit further. I mean, we're reformed, so our answer's got to be soli deo gloria, right? In Latin, it's preferable, but why? Glory of God, right? And if, you, if there's a why question, you go with glory of God, you're probably going to be right. Uh, and that certainly is the case here. Why must Christian slaves respect and honor and serve well their masters? And the answer is the glory of God. The way that Paul puts it, he kind of breaks it into two things. Regard them as worthy of all honor, verse one, so that, why, a reason, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. See, as Christians, we bear the name of Christ. We catch that, right? Christians. Christians, so we bear his name even in that description of ourselves. We bear his name and we represent him to those who are around us. As believers of the gospel, the teaching, the gospel, we demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel. We demonstrate it. It's demonstrated in our lives. And if we claim to be striving toward Christ-likeness and then act in a certain way, someone could ask, is that what it means to be Christ-like? If we align ourselves with the teaching of the gospel and then respond in anger toward an enemy, does that mean that the gospel teaches anger toward our enemies? If a Christian slave, slave dishonors, disrespects, and disobeys his master while bearing the name of Christ and being a follower of the gospel, is that because Jesus has instructed his followers to do so? 
You see, so our, our bearing that name and our following that teaching and then our actions in doing so affect those things. Somebody looking in be like, well, maybe that is what Christianity is all about. And so we need to be careful on those type of things. Actually pursuing the glory of God, representing his name well, not allowing it to be reviled. Because when an unbeliever sees a Christian with attitudes and behaviors that are genuinely contrary to the gospel, genuinely contrary to the gospel. See, unbelievers have all sorts of misconceptions about what Christ-honoring gospel behavior actually is. Okay? So you're not submitting to every cultural whim. It's like, well, Christians wouldn't do that. It's like, where did you find that in the Bible? Because I find in the Bible that that's exactly what Christians are supposed to do. See, but when they see an attitude or behavior that is genuinely contrary to the gospel, they will scorn or mock or revile God and his gospel. And this is something that we must strive to avoid in our lives and in our interactions with others. So what about Christian slaves with Christian masters? Because I think verse one is probably emphasizing Christian slaves with unbelieving masters. Maybe, maybe not, but I think that that's the case. But verse two, very unambiguous, very clear that it's talking about masters who are brothers, part of the same spiritual family like we talked about a few weeks ago. So they worship together in the same church and then when they go home, one's in charge and one's a slave. Does that make a difference? Both were Christians. Both, the master and this believing master, believing slave, both equally important members of the church in Ephesus, right? Because power in a church or authority or opportunities for service in the church must not be limited by wealth or social rank outside of the church. Don't do things according to prejudging or partiality like Paul warned the elders in chapter 5. Okay, so you could have a scenario, and this is mind-boggling to me, but it's true. You could have a scenario where a slave is an elder in the church in Ephesus and his master is not. That's an interesting kind of thing to think about because the, the social aspects outside of the church do not mirror inside of the church automatically, right? CFO, CEO, board member somewhere else does not mean like, hey, I'm an elder, I'm here to rescue the church. This is like, it's not the qualifications that we see. Like, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'll, I'll buy my way into the diaconate. Not, not the consideration that we talk about, right? So those things do not mirror. Both of these, whether the slave was an elder, master was an elder, slave was not an elder, master was not an elder. They were both Christians. They were equal members of Christ's kingdom, equally important members of the church in Ephesus, regardless of their social status outside of the church. But these Christian slaves, because of all that, and those are all true things, but because of that, these Christian slaves felt that they didn't need to respect or obey their masters. Because I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, I don't have to be a good slave. I don't have to respect you. I don't have to honor you. I don't have to serve you well. And that's because I'm a Christian and you're a Christian. On the ground that they are brothers disrespectful do not must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers that's where i'm getting that perhaps these christian slaves were focusing on paul's teaching it emphasizes the equality of all believers before god and each other in the church regardless of so many differences that existed between them and separated them outside the church we find summaries of paul teaching that very truth in passages like galatians 3:27 to 28 
Paul writes, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You could say, well, who does that apply to? What, what, what walls are broken down? He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And that, by the way, those are categories that encompass everybody. <laughs> like you're Jewish or non-Jewish. That's what it means there by Greek. You're like, I'm not a Greek. Do I apply? Gentile, you may have heard it said. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male or, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, in Colossians 3.11, here in the church, in the gospel, there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, Christ is all and in all. There is an equality in the kingdom. As has been said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. They took this truth, and it is a truth. They took it and they misused it to ignore other responsibilities that they had as Christians and other texts that clearly lay those responsibilities out. Maybe their thinking was something like this. I'm a Christian, so I don't have to work diligently for any earthly master because I have a heavenly master. So I don't have to work diligently for an earthly master. Maybe they were thinking, I'm a Christian, so I deserve special treatment or easier work from my master who is also a Christian. I deserve something. I'm a Christian. That should change my circumstances. That should change my situation. This type of thinking, I think, boils down to, does Christianity mean something should change toward me in the world right now? Have you asked that question? Have you considered what Christianity is? And have you come to the conclusion that Christianity means that something outside should change toward you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I was a slave. I shouldn't be a slave anymore, right? I should get something out of this, but that change toward me is not true in the present life. That doesn't mean that there aren't any benefits to the gospel. Far be it. It's not true uh, that becoming a Christian means you won't be a slave anymore, or you won't be poor anymore, or you won't be sick anymore. All those are examples of Christianity changing something outside toward you. Do you see? This is like, well, I'm a Christian, so X, Y, or Z, bad things. I should be shielded from that because I'm a Christian. I should be shielded from that right now. That's not the promise of the gospel. Never. The promise of the gospel is not that having accepted Christ, everything external toward, of you should change toward you. Instead, you have a promise of forgiveness. You have a promise of eternal adoption into God's family. I'm not saying that nothing towards you has changed. I'm saying that not the things that are temporal, the things that are merely earthly. Poverty, sickness, trials, difficulties, those things are promised not promise that they won't come, promise that they will come to those who are followers of Christ. But instead of the gospel meaning that something should change toward me, it means that something is changing in me. Something is changing from me. See, that's the transformation of the gospel. Not that I won't be poor anymore, but that when poor, I'm still blessed. I'm still faithful. I still have peace. I still have love toward God and toward my neighbor. I still have joy. I still have long-suffering. Something is changing in me when I'm sick, when I'm poor, when I lose my job. It's like, why are these things still coming? Because God's using them to change you, 
That's what the gospel does. That's what Christianity is, right? Yes, Christian, removing the sin that would come out from us and affect everything else and living for the glory of God through that transformation in any and every circumstance. And so those who would promise health and wealth and security and whatever its forms, right? It's kind of like, and we've said it before, it's like, I don't want $10 million. I just want, I just want enough cushion to give me some comfort. I don't want too much money. I just want probably a little bit more than enough money. I don't need perfect health, but I really, I mean, I don't really have time in the midst of everything else to be that sick. Like, come on, Lord, don't you know how many things I have to do? It's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is that God is changing you. God is changing you. Slavery is not inherently sinful. Both parties, slaves and masters, can sin and be sinned against. But neither of those facts render slavery a matter that is uninfluenced by the gospel. There's a lot of negatives in that. Slavery is influenced by the gospel because nothing remains uninfluenced by the gospel. Okay? That's, that's the point, the significant part we need to dwell on and learn from. Nothing remains unaddressed or uninfluenced by the gospel. There's no scenario or circumstance in the life of a human being as a follower of Jesus Christ that should be exempt from influence by the gospel. Transformation in every circumstance because the Holy Spirit is with you in every circumstance and God can and will be glorified in any and every circumstance. Nothing remains uninfluenced by the gospel That does not mean, because it's not true, that the gospel is a message of social upheaval and revolution. The gospel doesn't affect change from the outside by force. It infiltrates and transforms like a little bit of yeast left in a large ball of dough. You leave it long enough, it's going to transform the whole thing. Not saying that we shouldn't seek to have our laws conform to God's righteous standards. We should. That would be honoring to the Lord and better for humanity. But legislated morality will not save anyone. Ever. Legislated morality will not save anyone. Ever. And I do not see violent revolution condoned in Scripture resisting and disobeying unjust laws like our brother Tim, well, you know what? We, we're going to meet. And then we're going to throw you in jail. Well, we're going to meet. Now he's in jail. I see that. I see that to the glory of God and to the gospel. What about obeying God rather than man? Yes. What about going to prison rather than violating God's commands? Yes. What about taking arms up against ungodly government agents? No, I don't see that in scripture. So the gospel is not a message of social upheaval and revolution. I don't see that there. But none of this means that the gospel insists on maintaining every culture's status quo or that desiring freedom from slavery is sinful or unchristlike. Like just keep the lid on this thing. That's not what's happening here. It's interesting because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul wrote this, each of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant? Same word. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Seems like 
if I was a bond servant, I think, I feel, I think I'd be concerned about it. He says, don't be concerned about it because like, you can live for the glory of God in this is I think the point that he's making. But he also says this, do not be concerned about it, but then, and the ESV has it in parentheses, he says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But then he makes an important point. He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Like you're free in Christ. Then he says, because you were bought, likewise he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Because we're all slaves of Christ and free in Christ regardless of what our external circumstances are, right? Our reality in Christ, our, that identity. You were bought with a price, Paul says. Do not become bondservants of men. Don't enter into that scenario. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Remain in your condition, but gain your freedom if possible. There are times for Christians to remain in slavery, And yet freedom from slavery could provide more opportunities for gospel work. So it'd be better to not be in that. Paul addresses each of these. I think of Paul sending the recently converted slave Onesimus back to his Christian owner Philemon with this instruction. Philemon, receive Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and and in the Lord. Philemon does not contain, that's a, that's a letter in the New Testament, it does not contain an apostolic command to set his slave free. But I think it certainly moves in that direction, right? See him as more. He's a partner in the gospel, not just a hired hand in your house. See him as more. Paul saw Onesimus as more useful for work in God's household and kingdom then he saw him as useful for work in Philemon's household, and he wanted Philemon to see the same thing. So we start to see infiltration, right? We start to see transformation from the inside, individual slaves, individual masters. What's the application that we have? 21st century, risen King Church, Hurricane, West Virginia. I think first that I've mentioned it a couple times, We must submit our thinking and our behavior to God's word as our ultimate authority. Justin mentioned this a few weeks ago as he preached about the authority, the sufficiency of God's word. We must not seek to subject scripture to our ever-changing cultural norms. I mean, you'll fail at the task because it's changed from yesterday to today to tomorrow. God's truth does not. Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And that's just the first basic point. And here's, here's another significant point from this. All Christians are equally justified, adopted, dearly loved by God. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, young, old, rich, poor. All Christians equally justified in Christ, adopted, dearly loved. Yet, those distinctions that I mentioned, they all remain among us and distinctions are glorifying to God. Distinctions are glorified, glorifying to God. Distinctions some established in the creative order, like male and female, as God created all of humanity to be. Those are God's perfect design. They remain realities in the church to the present day. They have not gone away. 
in 2,000 years since this was written, they will not go away. It is good and glorifying to God for men in the church to be men and women in the church to be women. That is glorifying to God who created them as such. Other distinctions aren't necessarily found in the creative order, but are found in or grow out of maybe what we could call the providence of God. Other distinctions between us flow out of God's sovereign care over the universe and his orchestrating and dictating the affairs of all things. The rise and fall of nations, human affairs on a large and small scale, right? Like Paul says, hey, in Acts 17, he talks to the, the unbelievers in Athens and be like, you know what God's been doing? He's been drawing boundary lines of nations ever since the beginning. I mean, that's, those are huge events and then Jesus also taught, right, a hair is not going to fall off your head without your Father in heaven knowing this. Everything about us and everything on our lives, human affairs on large and small scale, all are from God. It is good and glorifying to God for some to be kings and some to be servants. It is God's will and good and glorifying to him for some to be American and some to be Austrian. Some to be from India, some to be from Indiana, even some from like Ohio or places like that. Some to succeed and some to fail. Good and glorifying to God. For some to be healthy and others to be sick, some to be tall or short, large or skinny, old or young, Red, brown, yellow, black, or white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. If you don't have brown in your version, you need to update that, by the way. It's not just red and yellow. Just say red, brown, yellow. It's just, it's just better. My sister learned that on some, some islands that she served on. The gospel will not, here's our third point. The gospel will not inevitably change or improve your situation in the present. There's no promise of that. The gospel will not inevitably change or improve your situation in the present, but it will, it will, and it must transform you in any and every situation. Are you a manager or are you a worker? You should be transformed by the gospel in how you live those things out. Are you a husband? Are you a wife? You should be transformed by the gospel in how you live those things out. Are you a parent or are you a child, follower of Jesus? You should be transformed in how those things live out. Are you a guard or are you a prisoner? You should be transformed by the gospel. Are you a doctor or are you a patient? Are you a cashier, contractor, plumber, electrician? Or are you a customer, right? At Kroger, at Aldi, at, at the pig, is that what you called it? At the pig, you should be transformed in how you shop and how you interact with people because of the gospel. How you are a brother or a sister in Christ, how those relationships, like we talked about in purity, impact each other, should be transformed by the gospel, and all of those things and so many others, you can either exalt and honor God in the gospel or you can cause them to be reviled. 
right? It, like it's, it's not, it doesn't all boil down to this, but it's kind of like this question, right? Somebody in any of those scenarios or any other, they find out you're a Christian. Are they like, what? Really? Never would have guessed it. Or, and that depends on their, their understanding of the gospel. I get that, right? Or is it just like, oh, they're a follower of Jesus? You know, that makes sense. Not the only question. It's just a way of looking at that. In all of these things, so many others, you can either exalt and honor God's name and his gospel, or you can cause them to be reviled. So how will God, through the gospel of his son and by the power of his Holy Spirit, how will God transform you this week? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful your gospel does transform us first by transforming our, our situation before you. Eternally, we are different and our situation is improved. Even when temporarily, temporarily it is not. Um, would you please forgive us for where we have misrepresented you as your followers? And would you transform us into the image of your son who glorified you in every circumstance he ever encountered. Thank you that his righteousness is ours by faith. Amen.